0: This morning we are obviously celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead. And through His death and resurrection, we too are promised to be raised to everlasting life. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. While you're turning there, I want to thank you for praying for uh, me while I was down in San Diego, uh, helping my mom after surgery. She's recovering well. While I was down there, I was able to visit my 97-year-old grandfather who has loved the Lord uh, ever since uh, World War II. And for the first time, he didn't recognize me. And uh, as I knelt by his kind of hospice bed and prayed for him and prayed with him or for him, basically... I was really grieved in my soul, you know, as I was looking at this man who has just been such a blessing to my life throughout all the years. And um, as I was looking at his body about to be sown in dishonor, my, my heart immediately began to praise the Lord. Because not, not only for his life and, and what a blessing he's been to our family and just glorifying God and by His works and deeds, but because as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, we're going to meet again. We're going to meet again. And it was the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ upon, upon me that moment that made me think about what other direction to go this morning. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, uh, which describes actually the resurrection of the believers there is an impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has happened, and the direct impact is upon believers. And so, uh, you know, quite often when, when you're a pastor, you get to teach every, every Easter, let's say on the resurrection, or when you come across as you're teaching. And, and you know, there are, He's risen, amen? How does that impact us? And so this is kind of where I want to go with that this morning. The Apostle Paul is writing in 1 Thessalonians, A couple thousand years ago, in chapter 4, starting in verse 13, he's writing to a church. He says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who are fallen asleep in Him, and according to the Lord's Word, we tell you That we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16 For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. I like the versions that say, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, We who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The church in Thessalonica that Paul is writing to uh, had a question. The question is, what happens to a believer when they die? What happens to the loved ones that are, in their case, being persecuted and executed or possibly have passed on? And there was obviously a mixture of thought within the culture of those days, and Paul set to clarify that. And Paul begins with great care and love for this church in verse 13, I'm going to go back over them briefly again, to answer them so that they would have comfort, they would know the certainty of eternal life, the resurrection from the dead. And so he says in verse 13, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, death is a great shadow over all of humanity. From the moment we are conceived, it is looming over each of us and no one escapes it. There's a statistic, and I bring it up often, I hear that 100% of people die. The scriptures teach the reason that we die is because it is a penalty for being sinners. And sadly, each of us are, by our very nature, sinners. We are in rebellion towards God. And we can see this when we look at the law of God. How do you know that you are in that state? Well, God gives us His perfect holy law, Ten Commandments. Maybe you saw the movie. Maybe you read them. Which show us his perfect moral standard. And as we look at the law of God, we see how perfect and holy he is. And by the way, when I look at it, I realize how unperfect and how unholy I am. And that is the purpose of the law, not that we obey it to attain some kind of standard of righteousness, it is a mirror to our soul. For example, in the first commandment, when God says, Don't have any other God, he wasn't kidding. And I don't know about you, but in my own heart, I've placed other things, other people, other priorities, other tasks, everything above the pursuit of God, above Him. They become idols in my life. Literally, back then, people would have idols that were other gods, but those things represented something. We're just a little more sophisticated sometimes. When we read, perhaps... The fifth commandment, do not kill. You might say, hey, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, we find out in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is speaking, he gives us actually what the law truly intends. He says, it's not, that you, it's not only that you murder someone." He says, where did that murder come from? It came from your heart. It came from my heart. He says, if you have anger with a brother or sister, you're guilty of murder. You're going, well, that's pretty intense. So it's not only the action, it's the intent of the heart. Isn't that crazy? Because many of us go, hey, I've got these things down. Jesus takes it a step further. He goes, look deep into yourself. And you might look at those and go, hey, hey I don't murder people. I'm going to air my heart towards anyone. Well, he goes on to lust, and he goes on to the things. And, and if you lust at a woman, he says, it's not, it's not that you actually commit adultery, it's that you lust in your heart after a, a man or a woman. And what happens? He says, you're guilty of it. And see, the law, it brings us all into condemnation, and who wants to hear that? So I create my own laws and my own rules and my own God, and I'm, I'm good. All the while, there's this conscience that God has given us that bears witness that we are broken, and the same with lying and coveting. And you see, the problem is that by nature, we're rebels, Our hearts are evil at their core, is what the Bible says. Mixed with just enough goodness to make you think you're good. Anybody else? That we create this moral standard that by we judge our goodness by everybody else. And if you're looking at Pastor Matt, you're like, I'm pretty good compared to that guy. Well, I'm not the standard. God is the standard, absolutely pure, holy perfection. And right now, I know many in your hearts are going, well, this is, come on now, but that's it. It's impossible, and that's what God's law shows. It shows us that we are all guilty, and therefore, God instituted death because we are all guilty. He says, there's an end point on this game that's going on. Because I'm, uh, I'm going to put a stop to it. I'm going to put a limitation on our rebellion. So when a person dies, they then stand before the righteous judge of the universe and give an account for how they lived. And so death hangs over all humanity like a shroud. And it's interesting, we, we look at this world and we go, that's not right that this person died at this time. And all these types of things, we're using our own moral standard to judge these things. The fact that we're all breathing is an act of God's grace upon us. That's a little different way of looking at it, isn't it? And so death hangs over all of us like this horrid shroud, and we're all guilty prisoners awaiting sentencing before a righteous judge. That's how the Bible lays it out. And we live our lives trying to avoid death. How many of you have done your diet? Done the exercise? Done the things? Have you figured something out yet? It's coming. Happy Easter. (laughs) We try to extend our lives, but it comes to us all, doesn't it? not guaranteed to be old. And God, being that righteous judge, could have left us with no way out. But He didn't. He didn't. Because God is not only holy and just, which is what we ignore, because we want to hear about the happy love God. And He is all that. But He is also holy and just. And when we minimize... The holiness of God and the justice of God, we minimize the love of God. Because that is the shadow in which they cast upon one another that you see He is righteous and holy. And in His holiness, in His absolute perfection, He reached down into my darkness, into your darkness, and He saves rebels. It's pretty powerful. He didn't leave us there. He's also full of mercy and love. How do we know? He expressed it in sending His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The spotless and innocent Son of God came and lived and obeyed the law that we could never live. He lived the perfect life, pure of heart. If you wanted to know what God was like, you look to Jesus Christ. emanated Him in everything He did and how He acted. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And then, because of that light that came into the world, the world rejected that light and crucified Him. And by the way, which was God's plan? That the innocent would die for the guilty. And He willingly went to the cross and received the wrath of God in place of guilty, that whoever would turn from their sin and believe upon Jesus, His righteousness, not mine, His death, not mine, would be saved from the wrath of God. Jesus saves. That's the gospel, the good news. So He sent His Son, and that judgment was put upon Him, the innocent for the guilty, that through faith in Jesus we'd be saved. Jesus made it very simple for us. He said in John 3.36, he said, this is Jesus speaking, he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. That is your flannel graph happy Jesus speaking about the state of humanity. We cannot put him in a box. He is who he is, and he stood there and he said, all of humanity is in one of two camps, you either have the Son or you don't. You either have re- believed or you have not. And so Jesus lets us know that we are in one of two camps today, this morning. And according to Jesus, the Son of God, you are in one of those. You've either escaped wrath, not by your good works and all the things you've done, not by being here this, mor- this morning, but by going, I totally believe that you lived life I couldn't live. I believe that you died to satisfy God's righteous requirements. I totally believe in you. You are it. Or you've rejected that and go, no, I don't believe in your spaghetti monster in the sky. That's how Jesus put it. Death comes to us all because all have sinned, but the good news is that Jesus came to save us what happens after death. Death is a gateway. (laughs) And that's the scary thing. And that gateway leads to the presence of God, either for judgment or for reward. Paul says to this group of believers who are wondering what happens to believers when they die, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. You see, the, the world, which is what the Bible calls those who don't believe in Christ, the world, the whole world is mostly unbelievers, they mourn without hope because there is no hope. This life is it for them. And what awaits is pure terror according to Jesus, as he said in John 3.36. But that is not true for believers. That is not true. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, you have been saved from that. Absolutely and totally saved from the wrath of God. You are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Reason to rejoice. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. We have a sure hope for us who believe in those who believe in Christ that have died. So how do we have a sure hope? Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. The reason that we have this hope, this sure hope, is that Jesus died and rose again. I mean, in other words, Jesus defeated death, amen? This would be a fanciful religious story if Jesus said all these things, claimed all these things, and he's dead in the ground like every other human being. Who cares? Amen? Amen? It's okay. To say the amen. Yes. It's like, who cares? If he's dead, it's like, so what? You don't have power over death. I don't care. Just like every other great teacher out there, or whatever it is, you would have no power over death but He is risen. Jesus has power over death. Jesus has power over what faces us all. He's faced it. He's overcome it. He stands on the other side of it. And for the believer, we can say with confidence, death, where is your sting? Jesus conquered death. Jesus. Let's just listen to what Jesus said of himself in John chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Jesus answered them. He's speaking to people who are questioning him. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. This is what Jesus said. He's, a, he's about to die. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. And they're thinking he's speaking about the physical temple over there. They're like, it took 48 years to build. What are you talking about? That's not what he was talking about. Verse 21 says what? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus said, you kill me, and I'm going to rise again in three days. And he did. Jesus raised himself in three days, the Bible says right there. Other places, it says the Father raised him. In other places, it says the Spirit raised him. In other words, what's the answer? God raised Jesus from the dead. Pretty powerful. And this isn't some story, by the way. It was witnessed first by Multiple women, then by Peter, then by John, then by the guys on the road to the Maus, and then by 500 people at once saw him alive. It was recorded in the New Testament as those people, eyewitnesses, started to die off. As I was telling you, I was starting to speak. I was, I was talking with my grandfather, who was alive in World War II, who actually was in World War II. How many of you this morning are in World War II, were in World War II? Did it happen? how do you know it happened? I think a bunch of people changed history. I don't think it really happened. You would look at me and go, what? You're crazy. It happened. There were people who saw it. They wrote it down. It's documented, right? That's exactly what happened. 500 people is a pretty good witness. Not only that, but the the change of the whole world after that point. And there's other extra-biblical things. But the resurrection is a historical fact. You have to argue that. Jesus is a real person. As you dig into archaeology, you find these things are absolutely true. People used to go, oh, Pontius Pilate never existed. And they started digging around Capernaum. What did they find? Oh, the inscription with Pontius Pilate on there. Okay, well, maybe it exists. And now they take the Bible and they open it up and they go, where are things in the Middle East? Oh, it's here. And then they go start digging, and they find it. Pretty interesting. So Jesus rose again. And this morning, 2,000 years later, Jesus is alive right now, church. He is alive, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now you go, well, I can't see him. Well, I can't see the information going in your cell phones right now. Does it exist? How do you know it exists? These are very interesting things, but he is seated at the right hand of, of the Father with all authority. And Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they what? Even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So how do you live? How do you conquer death? By believing in Christ. And Jesus asked, Mar- uh, I think it was Mary at the time, Martha, do you believe this? That's a good question. She said yes. And then we get into a discussion. And then what happens is Jesus, to illustrate that he has power over death, he goes to this guy named Lazarus, and he's, he's been dead for four days. And he says, Lazarus, get up and come out. And guess what happens? Lazarus gets up, comes out. Jesus has power over death. And Paul says back in our text in 1 Thessalonians 4 that because he lives, those who are his will also live, basically, those who have died in Christ are not dead. They're alive, actually. And by the way, this is what the apostles were sent to testify of. We think Jesus picked out 12 guys just to model his teaching, which is true, but they were to be witnesses of the resurrection, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And they had to have certain things. They had to start with his beginning of his ministry and go all the way through. They had to witness his death and his resurrection, and it wasn't just him. It was 120 others hanging around. And by the way, the 500, and I told you all about this, so it wasn't just them, but they were the official representatives. And they all lost their lives except for one. And they preached, That whoever repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will have the forgiveness of sins and you will have eternal life. That is the good news, the gospel. There is life after death and Jesus holds the keys to it all. And that offer still stands this morning. And Paul says that because we believe in the death and resurrection and because it is the fact that Jesus died and rose again, we believe that Jesus will bring back, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. In other words, those who have died believing in Christ are alive and will return with Christ. This is the hope. Paul uses this term sleep. And sometimes we get confused. It, it, it's, 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 an, it's a metaphor to describe those who have died in Christ. Just as Jesus did with Lazarus, he, they said, oh, he's dead, Jesus, and he stinks because he's been in the grave for four days. And Jesus says, hey, he's not dead. He's just asleep. And she's like, what are you talking about? It isn't that they're taking a nap. It's a metaphor for the death of a believer. Death isn't something to be feared for the believer, church. It is a scary thing, but it isn't something to be feared. It is ultimately to be welcomed when it comes, like sleep, When you're older, you welcome sleep. Death isn't something to be feared. It is to be welcomed when it's time. This is because it isn't a transition for the believer into a fiery judgment. It is a transition into his eternal presence. When a believer dies, our body goes into the ground or is cremated and scattered or blown up or lost in war or sunk in the sea or wherever your body goes... 2 Corinthians 5.1, but when we die, our spirits immediately go, to the, go in the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 9 And what Paul is describing here in 1 Thessalonians is the resurrection of the church, the reunification of our spirits with our resurrected bodies, the new bodies fit for a new heaven and a new earth. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. You see, when we die, our spirits immediately go into the presence of the Lord. To be absent the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul talked about. He said, I would rather be here, I would rather be with the Lord, but I'm hanging out with you all. It's like, you, you need me more than I need to be up there right now. And, that's, and he talks about that in depth in 1 Corinthians 15. But the resurrection is the reunification of the spirit with the glorified bodies. And Paul says that when Jesus returns for his church, he is bringing with him believers who have died or slept as the word. According to the, the Lord's word, verse 15, we tell you that we are still alive, we are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died in Christ are with the Lord right now, their bodies have returned to the dust, but the Lord's going to come for His church, which could be at any time by the way, and, and we who are alive and remain will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who have already died are going to be reunited with their glorified bodies first. And by the way, this is going to be like a one-two event. They're going to be raised from the dead at the return of Christ. And verse 16 describes this resurrection event in more detail. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What will that be like? Can you imagine right now a loud shout? Everybody hears it, and boom! And all of a sudden, the dead in Christ rise first. What's that like? And instantly... I mean, I've thought over the years, like, what, what happens to the people, like, who've died a long time? They're, like, all over the place. I mean, we're, we probably ate them and all that stuff. You know what I mean? They're in the food thing now. Like, I, I don't know. This is where I, I go in my mind. I'm like, how does this all work? But what I do know is that the same God who spoke the world into existence is not going to have a problem with grabbing all those things and putting it back together by that same word. And so don't, you know, I get a question often, hey, can I be cremated? Is that bad, you know, or or buried or all that stuff? Whatever. God's got you covered. He's way more powerful than all of that. And at his word, he'll take you and put you back together, however that works, and give you your glorified body. At the resurrection, he will shout in the dead or those who are asleep, with the Lord will be reunited with their glorified bodies, sinless bodies prepared to inhabit eternity with the Lord. What an event! What about the believers who still remain? What if the Lord would come today? What about us? Verse 17, and after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And Paul describes this event. Um, that is also described in what is often called the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want, you can flip over there real quickly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 52 is where I'm going to be. Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, we will not all taste physical death, but we will all be changed. The people who remain will all be changed. How? In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in a nanosecond, at the last trump, that connects us to the other verse. For the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And Paul describes this event again in First Corinthians 15 where Christ descends from heaven and shouts and the dead rise and those who are alive are changed. And that word changed means that something old is taken off and something new is put in its place. You're going to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. In other words, instant glorification. That's how I want to go. Anyone else? Like, "Lord, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord, bring your kingdom. Just snap us out of here. That's what I don't want to do the other way. But even if you do, He's got you, because he's going to shout, and instantly you'll be put together again, so to speak. You'll no longer be in your, and it's just the spirit, but you'll be in the body that He's prepared for you. Body without sin. That's glory to me. And Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the others. That word caught up is harpazo in the Greek, which is where we get the word rapture, I think in Latin. That word caught up, it means to be violently seized by force. It means to claim for oneself eagerly. So the rapture, the catching up of believers at the resurrection of the church will be a sudden and instantaneous transformation and transportation from our earthly bodies to our glorified bodies, meeting our Lord and our other brothers and sisters in the ear with the Lord, and that is how I want to go. And Paul says at the end of verse 17, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And so we will be at the Lord, with the Lord forever. The Lord is going to come and get His church, and He will resurrect and reunify His people on that day, and we will be united with Him forever. Amen. That is our hope. This is what believers long for. If you've been living in this body for any amount of time past your teenage years, you start to realize as you do the pursuits of life, they just, they don't do it. They just don't quite fit. Anybody there? The older that you are, the more you say amen. Amen that you're made for something beyond, something that doesn't wear out, something that doesn't lose its new car smell. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I always joke with, you know, like John, you know, we're talking about buying cars and stuff like that, you know. It's like, do you like that car? And it's like 20 years old. It's like, nah, not really. Like, that was somebody's thing in the day. It's just... It's all vanity. We're made for eternity. We're made for Him. Where nothing wears out. Where it doesn't decay. Our interests don't we don't lose our interest. We grow and God just continues to reveal Himself to us throughout the eons, probably. It's never going to end. The Lord, we will be with the Lord forever. And this is what believers long for. In John, in, in, by, the way, by the way, what the Lord longs for for us. In John 14, 1 through 4, we see Jesus' heart for this day. Speaking to his disciples, he said to him, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. How many of you have heard these words? Listen with New Year's Church. Verse 2 My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. That word with, I've shared it with you before, is face to face. He was with the Father throughout all eternity in this glorious relationship. The world was created, the world fell, and Jesus left that relationship. Not that he was out of relationship with him, but he left and came down to grab us and get us and purchase us out of sin that we might go be face to face with God throughout all eternity. That's what he does. That's the big picture, that you may be with me. Jesus is coming back for his church, and when he comes for his church, he's going to bring those believers who died, and with a shout, their bodies will be raised. Perhaps those will be ours if he tarries, and we will be resurrected with glorified, sinless bodies to be with the Lord forever and ever. And as the story goes on, we will feast with him While the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth during the tribulation, we will return to the earth with him at the end of that seven years to rule and reign with him when he establishes his kingdom on earth and rules with a rod of iron for a thousand years. And at the end of that age, we will be with him still when the earth is consumed by fire and Satan and his demons are cast in eternal hell. We will still be with him. When everyone who has rejected Christ is resurrected, by the way, there are two resurrections, the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of dead, and by the way, there's a lot more there, but when those unjust are resurrected in bodies prepared for them, for judgment, to stand before the great white throne of God and receive their judgment for what they have done in their bodies, we will still be with Him when He casts them in death and hell into the eternal lake of fire, and when he creates the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem descends, where he's going to be the only light that is needed as he sits on his glorious throne in that kingdom, we're still going to be with him forever and ever and ever. Because he lives, we live. And it's not temporary, it does not wear out, it is eternal. These words should comfort us, that His life is now ours. Makes me think of Ephesians 2, 4 through 8, in closing. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Some of you this morning have never received forgiveness. You've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Today is the day. You might have been churched. You might have done all these things. You might have been religious. Now is the time. The gospel is here. The door is open. Receive him before it closes. He made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. He raises dead rebels and gives them his life. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seats us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Paul says. In other words, we have been united with Christ now through grace, through faith in Him. But why does Jesus save such undeserving people like me, like you? Why does He reach out and save rebels? Why did He die in our place? Why did He give us everlasting life? Why will He resurrect us? Why does He do all this? I want to know why, God. Why would you go through all this? Verse 7, In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's what's in store for you. Him in the ages to come, whatever that means, him just showing you the incomparable riches of his grace towards you in Christ Jesus. That's what you have to look forward to God's grace and everlasting kindness, and it's all in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. But that door is open. He did all that, that he might show those His incomparable riches of grace expressed in His kindness to Jesus to us. The Father's unending grace, unending kindness in Christ Jesus. The name Jesus, it means that God saves. That's what His name literally means. God saves. He saves us from the wrath of God, church. And if that's you right now, you've never received it, and the Holy Spirit is convicting you Come to Him. Run to Him. His arms are open. You must do two things. You must repent, which means you turn from your sin, and you know what it is, and He's convicting you of it. And you must abandon all of that, and you must believe that He has died in your place and that He rose again to give you life. That is the gospel. And when you do that, you're born again. It's it's His act upon you and your response to Him. It's a beautiful thing. You're born again. He comes and now lives in your heart. You are eternally His. And you begin to change from the inside out. Not the outside in of religion, but the inside out. You must be born again, Jesus said in John 3, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that offer is for you. You give him all your sin and all of yourself, and he will give you all of him. But he not only saves you from sin, but he saves you to give you his eternal life. He will raise you from the dead, not only from the dead of this life, <laughs> and right now he gives you life, but life eternal when you pass away because all that sin do die. There is a common punishment, but there is a great and glorious grace that overcomes that in Christ Jesus. And it is yours, it's extended to you. And Jesus said that not many would come. I'm not expecting people to respond to me. This is between you and the Lord. He said, Not many will come. He said, The the way to to me is is narrow and few find it because who wants to abandon themselves? Who wants to surrender? Who wants to repent? who wants to give up their life, but Jesus says, unless you give up your life, you'll never have it. If you hold on to your life, which is the wide, broad path, you're going to lose it. But the path is open to you right now. It's yours in Christ. Repent and believe. The life He died and rose again to give you is yours. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You For your amazing grace in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you are risen from the dead. That you're not in the ground. You're not a dead God. You are a live God. And just as you spoke the world into creation. just as And it happened. Just as you spoke to demons and they flee. Just as you spoke to those who were in need of healing and they were healed. Just as you spoke to those who needed forgiveness and they were forgiven just as you spoke to the dead and they raised. And so just as you say that anyone who comes to me and believes will have eternal life, so we will have eternal life. We take you at your word, Lord. Thank you for your great gift of grace. And if that's your heart right now, to give your heart to Jesus, put your hand up, we'll pray for you at the end of the service. I won't make you come up, but we'll pray for you. Come up to me and talk to me afterwards. Anyone wants to receive the Lord, we'll pray for you. Amen. Lord God, We just ask that you would work in the hearts of your people, that we would be ready to see you, that we wouldn't be um, those found without our lamps lit, so to speak. We anxiously await for your return, Lord. And we pray that the harvest would be plenty as your word goes out. We want to thank you for your son and the kindness you've shown to us rebels that are now sons and daughters. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.